The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. A pledge of allegiance to King Charles sparks controversy, Prince Harry puts William under pressure over phone hacking, and Princess Anne takes a swipe at slimming down the monarchy. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. The Archbishop of Canterbury is planning to invite the British public to swear allegiance to King Charles III during the coronation, which is minutes, hours, a few days away, on Saturday, May the 6th. Now, it's been described as the homage of the people, others have called it a chorus of millions, and anti-monarchy campaigners are calling it offensive nonsense. But the order of service will read, All who so desire in the Abbey, that's Westminster Abbey, and elsewhere, say together, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. Um, now, this was announced by Lambeth Palace, which, just to be really clear, is not actually part of the royal household. Don't get confused by the word palace. This is actually the home of the Church of England, and it's not. So they are independent and separate from monarchy. But uh, or no doubt they will have had some communication with the royal household over it. I'm sure they will have run it past the palace and got a bit of a sense from them of whether they would have supported it. But. Needless to say, this became controversial really fast after it was first announced. And um, very quickly, briefings started to appear in the Sun newspaper seeking to distance the royals from what the um, Archbishop of Canterbury was suggesting. A source told that newspaper that responsibility would lay firmly on the Archbishop, who was described as having gone off-piste. Um, meanwhile, Clive Lewis, who's a opposition MP, opposition lawmaker, um, and for, on behalf of the Labour Party, said it would be ignored by many. And um, that British news shows have been debating whether this is a blunder or whether it's a good idea. And by Tuesday, four days out from the coronation, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, went on the BBC to try to defend the suggestion. And he said, in every Anglican service, every Christian service, it is normal for congregations to participate. It's an invitation. So if you want to join in at this point, by all means, do so. If you don't want to, that's fine. There's no drama to it, which I think those last few words say about as much as can be said about this issue. It has turned into a bit of a drama. Um, so where does it all leave Charles? Well, I can't help thinking that someone, perhaps in Lambeth Palace or Buckingham Palace, must have had the bright idea that this could create a kind of social media moment. So you can imagine that people who are very staunchly pro-royal, and particularly if they're also Christian, might well want to record themselves performing this oath and post it onto social media and somebody might have thought, well, won't that be great if it all goes viral and it creates a little bit of a, mo a social media moment. But of course, it's not only going to be royalists who are on social media on Coronation Day. And actually, the coronation is a big campaigning tool for the anti-monarchy campaign group Republic. So I think personally, that there's a real chance that Republic are going to hijack any 
kind of social media hashtags that might develop around this oath of allegiance and will fill them with their own uh, pledges to abolish the monarchy or their own denunciations of King Charles or whatever else you can imagine. So just on the Sunday, within hours of this announcement being made by Lambeth Palace, um, Celtic fans, for those who don't know your soccer, this is one of the biggest football clubs in Scotland, the old Scottish rivalries between Celtic and Rangers, the two clubs were playing. Rangers fans are known for being very pro-royal and Celtic fans were partly mocking their rivals, but basically started chanting, you can shove your coronation up your ass, um, which obviously footage of that went viral. And this is the kind of thing that I am thinking might start happening on Saturday if the Pledge of Allegiance does become big. So it's one of those situations where what the king wants is just a really nice, happy atmosphere on Coronation Day. The last thing he wants is for this plan by the Church of England to sour the mood on Coronation Day. He, the last thing he wants is to be plunged into the middle of a culture war on the day he's crowned for the first time. You're going to have people joining in, I think, for definite, because you people may remember that in the days after the Queen died, um, crowds gathered outside Buckingham Palace and people kind of spontaneously burst into singing uh, God Save the King. So those people I can 100% see taking part in this and, you know, posting their footage on TikTok or on Twitter or on Instagram. However, this will be complete anathema to a lot of British people. Uh, including many who like the monarchy. You know, it's it's not simply about whether you like the monarchy or whether you don't like the monarchy. Many people who are pro-royal will still, I think, not really be down with the idea of pledging allegiance, uh, particularly younger royalists. It feels kind of like something from another time. And that means what you wind up with is a divisive issue that becomes a touchstone for kind of other types of identity politics. As in, for example, are you the kind of person who swears allegiance to the king or the kind of person who goes on Twitter to admonish the king? Um, it becomes conservative traditionalists versus radical activists. Uh, and the whole point of monarchy is supposed to be to be politically neutral, but not only politically neutral, these kind of massive royal events which are full of pomp and pageantry are supposed to be times when everybody kind of comes together and feels united and upbeat and happy and celebratory uh, without the kind of acid of divisive political debates that you get in politics in, in Westminster between you know Tories on one side and Labour on the other. Um, so for me, that's the risk here. Uh, and that's why I think this is a terrible idea um, that Charles just does not need on the biggest day of his life, really, to date. This is the biggest day of his life. Obviously, the day that the Queen died was, you know, also the biggest day of his life, but in a much more tragic sense. This is the big day that is about celebration. But also, he does have a challenge ahead of him because polling of young people uh, who obviously are particularly big users of social media um, and 18 to 24 year olds are not particularly pro monarchy at the moment. Um, polling as recent as January suggested that more than 50% were anti monarchy, would abolish the monarchy if given a choice, compared to somewhere in the 30s, I, I seem to recall, wanted to keep King Charles. Um, so, you know, against that backdrop, You've got to think that the older British people who are the most pro-royal will probably actually stand a healthy chance of being drowned out by all the young people who are really social media savvy and know how to get their videos to trend. Of course, all of that said, we will have to see on the day. 
on the day anything could happen. Um, and of course, if you do want to stay up to date on it, just check Newsweek. We will be covering all the most interesting aspects on the day. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before we do, just a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, Prince Harry's lawyers have been back in court. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Now, Prince Harry's lawyers have been, as they always are, very busy, uh, this time with a long-anticipated uh, lawsuit against Rupert Murdoch's media empire. So specifically, the defendant in this case is down on paper as News Group Newspapers, which is the old name for as now News UK, which is basically Rupert Murdoch's newspaper division in Britain. Um, Harry is accusing them of historic phone hacking. Um, and what's really interesting about it is that he's not just accusing the now defunct Murdoch tabloid, The News of the World, he's also accusing The Sun. So um, The News of the World did hack Harry's phone. Uh, they admitted it back in 2006. It all went through the courts. It's very well established that that happened. There's not really anything new about the fact that The News of the World hacked Harry. Uh, the publisher is saying, it has admitted it in court papers, but said that that is all out of time. It's too old. It's too long ago. He's known about it since 2006, and he only had six years in which to actually bring a civil lawsuit over it. So that means that the big question here is about Harry's allegations against the Sun. Now, the publisher, the Murdoch Empire, has always said that the Sun never hacked phones. Uh, they tried to contain the fallout from the phone hacking scandal to the news of the world, which was closed down at the height of the scandal when it emerged that uh, the victim of a serial killer, um, Millie Dowler, her phone had been hacked by a private investigator working for the newspaper. Um, so Harry's trying to do is to prove for the first time in court that the son was also caught up in this scandal. But, again, the publisher is saying that it's all too late, that he knew that he could potentially have been a victim way back in 2006 when the, uh, when the News of the World royal editor apologised to him. He knew when it was all going through the Leveson inquiry, which people may remember from way back when. It was a big kind of public inquiry into the culture and practices of the British press. And he knew before 2013, which is his cutter point. Now, Harry filed this case in 2019. So that's the six year window. There has to have been something that happened after 2013 that caused him to know for the first time that he could potentially have been a victim. But, it, you know, that, all of that is complicated enough, but it doesn't stop there. It gets more messy because Harry has brought in various members of his family into this lawsuit, starting with Prince William. Um, one big revelation from a court hearing on this subject that uh, happened at the High Court in London uh, was that Prince William was paid a sum of money, Harry says a, a large sum of money, 
by the Murdoch Empire to settle a phone hacking claim out of court. Now, Harry has described it as being paid to go quietly. His lawyer suggests that he's not criticising any members of his family, but it did lead to some on social media suggesting that William was taking hush money. The big question mark over this revelation is whether Prince William was accusing the son of hacking his phone, or whether this was simply a payment in lieu of the fact that he is well-established. Like Harry, he's well-established as a victim of phone hacking. Um, it was proven in court in a criminal, uh, a criminal case. First of all, Clive Goodman, the royal editor of the News of the World, and a private investigator called Glenn Mulcair pleaded guilty and were sentenced to four months in jail for phone hacking. Uh, they pleaded guilty in 2006 and were sentenced in 2007. So it was all well established back then that this had happened. And obviously, as a victim of phone hacking, Prince William and Prince Harry would have been perfectly entitled to payments, to compensation payments, to damages for the fact that they were victims. So the real question here, just to say again, is obviously the publisher, while denying phone hacking took place at The Sun, would be unlikely to want to pay Harry for a crime, a criminal offence, that they say didn't happen at that newspaper. So if Harry is determined to get a acknowledgement of that phone hacking happened at The Sun, then obviously it's going to be very difficult to, for him to get an out-of-court settlement because they're denying that that took place. If William was simply saying, I was a victim of phone hacking by the news of the world, it would be much easier for him to get a settlement. Needless to say, Harry is clearly not happy about the fact that William has been given this money, but the newspaper publisher is saying that his own case has been filed too late. Uh, the payment to William was in 2020, which was also obviously many years after the fact. But it, it doesn't stop there. I mean, obviously, the, you know, again, that's another very complicated aspect of this case, but it gets more complicated still because it's not just William. Harry has also brought Charles into the case by um, kind of he. A big part of what Harry's saying is that there was a secret agreement between the palace and the Murdoch Empire that royal family members would not pursue phone hacking claims against uh, against the publisher until after a variety of other civil litigations filed by celebrities and big name public figures in Britain had all been resolved. Um, he called, refers to this in his witness statement, a uh, 17,000 word witness statement as the secret agreements. And um, he talks a little bit about why he thinks that this secret agreement was struck. Um, and he says that there was a, a big desire within the family and within the palace to make sure that no royal family member would have to take the witness stand to give evidence about the phone hacking that took place. And he says that part of the motivation to prevent this is because they were worried about embarrassing disclosures of the kind that Charles and Queen Camilla experienced in the scandal known as Tampon Gate. Now, Tampon Gate goes back to 1993, when a telephone call, and actually, if you've seen The Crown, you possibly know this already, but there was a telephone call between Charles and Camilla in which they were exchanging some intimate uh, intimate asides with each other and Charles said that he wanted to be uh, he might be reincarnated as a tampon so he, that he could live inside Camilla's pants now um, hopefully you haven't spat out your tea or coffee uh, and if you, ha if you have please forgive me but 
Obviously, it's quite striking that Harry has chosen to throw one of the most humiliating episodes in Charles's life right into the middle of this case, when, to be honest, it was completely unnecessary to do so. The point that Harry's trying to make here is a really simple, straightforward point that I cannot see anybody contesting, and it was perfectly possible to make it with reference to um, evidence that is already part of the case. So... It's very straightforward that the palace would not want embarrassing information to come out in court. Um, but the embarrassing information would be nothing whatsoever to do with tampon gate. It would have been to do with the voicemail messages that had been hacked by um, journalists and private investigators. And we know what those were. We know what the embarrassing details were. It was messages about Prince Harry's ex-girlfriend sending him a topless photograph of herself. It was uh, One of them was an answer phone message about Prince Harry going to a lap dancing club and then William ringing him afterwards and leaving a joke voice, you know, making light of it and joking about it by leaving a voicemail message in which he impersonated Harry's girlfriend at the time. You know, this is the kind of stuff that's already there in the court documents, which shows that there would have been embarrassing revelations if a royal family member had been called to give evidence. So the fact that he chose to throw Tampon Gate in there when it's such an old example... I mean, what it's either just a desire to humiliate Charles by dragging it all back to the surface again, or perhaps it's a kind of dig along the lines that because that was a telephone call, maybe Harry is kind of trying to imply that perhaps that was a result of wiretapping by a tabloid newspaper and that, you know, maybe Charles should have taken action over it. But Harry doesn't say that. And um, it's very difficult to read between the lines of moments like this because obviously Harry's the same guy who told us that Meghan never accused the royal family of racism. So really it's very difficult to understand or explain exactly why he did throw this hand grenade into the middle of the court case. Um, But the other aspect is he also brought the Queen into it by saying the Queen backed his campaign to try to get accountability and justice from Murdoch Empire. Now, again, what's slightly unclear about what he says is whether the Queen supported him getting compensation for the hacking that took place at the News of the World, which everybody knew happened and which the newspaper apologised for in 2006, or whether she actually backed him trying to prove in civil litigation that the son had hacked his phone. Because obviously those are two completely distinct and separate projects, separate proposals, and he's not clear in his witness statement about which the Queen had supported. And another major aspect of this is that, whether intentionally or not, Harry has created a situation where people are accusing William of basically, like I said earlier, taking hush money, and the palace more broadly of kind of trying to do deals with the Murdoch empire that kind of keep the phone hacking scandal out of the public domain. But what's really interesting about that is that it was actually the the palace and Prince William who exposed phone hacking to begin with. Way back in 2005, late 2005, um, a story appeared in the News of the World in a particular column by its royal editor, Clive Goodman, um, which suggested that Tom Bradby, a friend of William and Harry's, was borrowing some video equipment off William, uh, sorry, was lending some video equipment to William, Um, which he was going to take on a trek to record a video blog. Now, it seems like an innocuous story, but it was the product of phone hacking. Now, Tom Bradby told William that he believed that this was the likely source of the story. Uh, William and his private secretary at the time, Jamie Lowther Pinkerton, agreed that it was basically a very bad thing and that some action needed to be taken. 
Further discussions then took place within the royal household, which uh, revealed that various other staff members had been having problems with their voicemail messages, um, including in contexts where stories had appeared in the news of the world. They all spoke to the company lawyer who agreed that this was likely the product of phone hacking. And in December 2015, they reported it to the police. That led to the prosecution and conviction for phone hacking of Clive Goodman and Glenn Mulcair uh, on behalf of the News of the World. Now, that was the first domino to topple and several dominoes down the line. It would later lead to the News of the World closing. It would lead to the Leveson inquiry. It would lead. It would be transformative for the British media. It would change the landscape of the British press because phone hacking no longer happens in the British media. I, I, I don't feel that anybody claims it does, even Harry. I think the, the most recent of any allegation that Harry makes is to, uh, whether you know, proven or not proven, whether supported by evidence or not supported by evidence, the latest allegation is 2016. Um, so I, I don't think even he is suggesting that anything is happening now. So... Why does Harry not give the credit where it's due to family members who have taken on the taken on one of the biggest newspaper groups in Britain, one of the biggest news one of the biggest news organisations in the world? If you if you expand it out to Murdoch's whole global empire, I mean, if you think that the fallout from the phone hacking scandal affected Murdoch ultimately globally, you know, and the starting gun on that process was William and the palace reporting phone hacking to the police. Now, Harry had told Oprah that his family were controlled by the media through fear and were were too scared to stand up for them. But this almost seems like he's kind of inadvertently wound up dredging up this, you know, honestly, largely forgotten chapter from the history of the British media, which seems to point in the exact opposite direction. Far from being scared of Murdoch, they reported a Murdoch journalist, to the police. Um, And that also speaks to the whole purpose of what Harry's trying to do with these lawsuits. Now, he told ITV, in fact, Tom Bradby, that same journalist, he told Tom Bradby as recently as January that he wants to make these kind of media litigations his life's work. He wants to change the landscape of the British media. Those were his words. But I can't help thinking that William has kind of already done that. That's what William did back in 2005, 2006, William and the other palace staff who reported this to the police. So where does that leave Harry? If phone hacking has already stopped, and this is one of three lawsuits that are tied to historic allegations, then how is it possible to change a media landscape that has already changed? We know what Harry is angry about uh, with the Daily Mail about now. He's angry that they print mean things about Meghan. He's angry that Jeremy Clarkson wrote a column in The Sun um, saying that Meghan should be paraded naked and have excrement thrown at her. You know, but suing over historic phone hacking allegations doesn't stop newspapers in the present day from being mean to Meghan. So... I can't help just wondering where Harry's actually going with this. Like, what is the end game? What is the actual game plan for how he stops the uh, the news stories that he resents today via these lawsuits that are rooted in the past? And what's really interesting about all of this is that there was recently a story in a British broadsheet newspaper called The Telegraph, which suggested that Meghan and Charles had exchanged letters with one another um, after the Oprah interview back in March 2021 about her allegations of unconscious bias in the royal family, 
The Telegraph suggested that her dissatisfaction with Charles's response might be a reason she's not going to the coronation. Now, park that for a minute. What's interesting about this whole saga is that the Sussexes released a statement through their press secretary, which said that Meghan is living her life in the present. Now, Harry has made it his life's work to dredge up scandals from the British media that are rooted far longer ago than the letters exchanged between Meghan and Charles back in 2021, or the allegations of unconscious bias, which their spokesperson suggested were four years ago in 2019. So Harry, I mean, I I just cannot see how Harry is living his life in the present. And, you know, honestly, maybe he should be. Like, maybe Meghan's right. Maybe Meghan is right to be living her life in the present, and maybe Harry should take a leaf out of her book. But right now, he very firmly seems to be living his life in the past. In fact, he seems, reading through his witness statement in the court papers, to be trying to avenge the death of his mother, Princess Diana, in 1997, and also uh, what he sees as the unfair treatment that Meghan received in the British media on her entry into the royal family and subsequently. Oh, goodness, that was a lot, wasn't it? It's a complicated case, and it's a complicated issue, and it's not going to end because there is another chapter in this saga happening after the coronation when Harry's lawsuit against the Mirror Group, another British tabloid newspaper group, is going to also be heard at the High Court. And at some point, he is going to attend in person. But I'm going to take one more quick break to let everybody recover from that avalanche of court news. But before I do, a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston and you will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, Princess Anne has opened up a new chapter in the long running saga of slimming down the monarchy. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, Princess Anne has been talking about slimming down the monarchy. This is a project that Charles has had since the days when he was Prince of Wales, way back in the 1990s, when he felt there were too many royals on the Buckingham Palace balcony. It looked opulent at a time of recession. It looked uh, it looked decadent, and he felt that the monarchy should instead focus more on the kind of core of the line of succession. Now, back in those days, some of the debates that were being had were about the fate of his brothers, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward, and also his uh, brother, Prince Andrew's children, Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie. Now, um, if Robert Lacey's biography, Battle of Brothers, is anything to go by, Charles didn't win all of these battles. Obviously, the Queen was head of the monarchy at the time, but he did uh, partially have a victory back in the 90s and Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie as a result are not working royals and Prince Edward's um, children are also not working royals either. It was kind of about making sure that what would be the cousins of future King William 
would not have an official formal role. At that point in time, the Queen's cousins were still doing uh, royal jobs, and Charles. Wanted, that's what Charles was trying to shrink down. So what he wanted to focus on was the heir to the throne and the heir to the throne's children, but keep the cousins out of it. So skip on a generation, leave that in the, back in the 1990s, and skip on to now, and the modern debate about slimming down the monarchy has been about Harry's children, because obviously Archie and Lilibet will be cousins to future King George. Um, so what Princess Anne actually had to say on the subject, she went on Canadian TV and she was asked about it, and she said, I think that slim down was said in a day when there were a few more people to make that seem like a justifiable comment. I mean, it doesn't sound like a good idea from where I'm standing, I have to say. I'm not quite sure what else we can do. So, there's two ways to read this. One, Charles agrees with her and also thinks that slimming down was located in the past and is no longer relevant today. Or, she is criticising Charles, she is disagreeing with Charles. Either way, this is potentially controversial. Um, And perhaps even more than it might initially seem, because the Slimming Down project was the backdrop to the most explosive part of Harry and Meghan's Oprah Winfrey interview. So this is the accusations against an unnamed royal family member who um, Meghan suggested made comments about her unborn child's skin colour. It wasn't just about skin colour, though, because Meghan raised that issue when she was asked by Oprah why it was that the royals wanted to deny, she felt, her children the title prince or princess. So um, Meghan said that there were discussions about, and that's really important because she didn't say that changes had been made, but she said there were discussions about changing the rules so that her children would not get prince and princess titles, which would mean that Archie, she was pregnant with Archie at the time, would be the first family member in that position uh, who would be denied that title. And she pointed to his ethnicity as a possible background. Um, It seems like maybe her and Harry view it more as unconscious bias than racism, though I do question whether there is actually a difference in this context. Um, and there's also the se- the related but separate issue of whether Archie would be would receive security. Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie obviously got princess titles, and they had police protection up until round about the time they graduated from university. They don't have it anymore. So this all would, uh, in my view, make for slightly bizarre viewing for Harry and Meghan to now watch Princess Anne speak so openly against the project of slimming down the monarchy, which seems so important to Charles. Um, And now that Harry and Meghan and Andrew have left, all of a sudden the complaints are coming in the opposite direction. Now there are too few, uh, too few royals to do the large workload of visits that need to happen. So if you're Harry and Meghan, surely you've got to be wondering, like, why so much pain and hurt got inflicted for something that seemingly was unnecessary on Princess Anne's accounts all along? You know, Archie and Lily in a parallel universe somewhere would be uh, in which Harry and Meghan had not left the palace, had not quit as working royals, had stayed in Britain, um, would be able to presumably be prince and princess and be working royals and have security according to Princess Anne's conception of of, um, what is important. Um, So if her views are hers alone and do not reflect Charles's, then that suggests that he is actually perhaps way more isolated than maybe we realised on the question of slimming down, if his own sister is breaking ranks and coming out opposed to it. It's also a really interesting question in terms of where monarchy stands 
in this particular moment in history because obviously, as I've said before many times on this show, privilege has gone out of fashion really fast and slimming down was supposed to be part of Charles's efforts to kind of try to make the monarchy seem more affordable and like less of a strain on the public purse uh, originally in the 90s during the recession that took place then. But then also, obviously, we've had some hard economic times recently too. But if slimming down people is causing reputational damage, then what about the gold carriages? What about the Auburn Scepter? What about these hugely expensive jewels and the crowns? And what about all the fabulous clothes and the necklaces and the bracelets and the earrings? Like, that's the visible wealth. So if slimming down the monarchy can't really happen anymore, and that's not the way that Charles shows that he is running an efficient, a financially efficient project, and they're still dripping with all of these wonderful um, items of jewellery, and they still have all these residences and homes, does he also then just wind up not actually solving the problem that he himself identified originally? Now, that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, and a curtsy to you all. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. (laughs) It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.